Hello, my name is Aviva, and I'll be having a conversation with Farah for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experience of trans-identifying people. It is May 22nd, 2019, and it's being recorded on Broom Street in my apartment. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Welcome to my apartment. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask you, where are you from? And could you tell me about your childhood and some family background stuff? Um, okay, I uh, I was born in Queens, New York. Um, and then my parents moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico when I was about two years old. And um, so my earliest memories are of Albuquerque. I don't remember Queens I didn't know at that all. about you. Yeah. Um, and then we lived there for a couple years my uh, my younger sibling was born there, and um, then we moved to the suburbs of Dallas, Texas, when I was like three or four-ish, and that's where I lived until I was 18, and then I moved back to New York um, in 2011, and I've been here ever since. Wow. Um, family background stuff. Um, my parents... Uh, my parents were both born in um, Tanzania, and um, so was so were my grandparents on both sides. And um, my parents independently, like before they knew each other, moved to New York, and they met in they immigrated to New York, and they met um, at mosque in New York. And um, yeah, uh, they got married, and um, a few years later had me. Um, my family is um, Ismaili Muslim, and um, we are Gujarati Indians um, who, like, moved to a few different countries in East Africa for, like, the last three or four generations, going back from me. Wow. And what brought them to New York? Um, so, it was, like... My parents were, basically, my parents were born in the early 60s, which was the beginning of the post-colonial period in um, East Africa, both in, in Tanzania and Kenya, where some of my family also lived, um, and in Uganda. Um, they all kind of got their independence around the same time in the early to mid-60s. I don't remember the exact dates. Um, and... Um, because of the way the British colonial system was set up to be a racial hierarchy, um, where Europeans were at the top and black Africans were at the bottom. Um, and, uh, it, what, what they, what they call in East Africa, Asians, which usually refers to Indians, um, or like South Asians, um, and Persians and Arabs, um, of which there were there have been a lot in uh, East Africa for millennia um, because of Indian Ocean trade routes. Um, that's why my family like ended up there. Um, my my family like historically have been like merchants. Um, so yeah, so my family, you know, we're, we're running mostly like stores, and my mom's side was running like general stores and stuff in East Africa, and my dad's side. Um, was doing similarly slash some of them were also just like proletarian workers and um, 
after independence, there was a lot of power reshuffling, um, and there was a lot of um, there was a lot of sort of backlash against um, non-black people, particularly um, particularly Europeans, but also against um, Asians in East Africa and in. Um, this led to, you know, some policies that are kind of more famous, like Idi Amin in Uganda um, formally, like, expelled all Asians from the country. Um, Kenya did a similar thing, but not exactly the same, where, like, if you didn't have Kenyan citizenship, which a lot of people did not because they had British um, colonial citizenship. So they were basically like, if you don't have Kenyan citizenship then you have to go back to where you came from, which for some people was like many, many generations ago. Um, they just had to like take themselves back to wherever their people were from. Um, and in Tanzania, it was uh, a lot less kind of legally done, but it was more done like sort of socially. Um, like um, people's businesses were seized by the government if they were not black Africans and... Um, also, there was just kind of general, like, like social, like, unrest and violence against, um, against people of Asian descent. And so, um, my family event was just like, it's not a good time for us to be here. And, um, you know, from the, like, mid-60s to, like, early 80s, basically, um, almost everyone in my family, like, left East Africa um, and moved some to London, some to, um, Pakistan, some to New York. Um, a lot of my family now has ended up in, uh, the Toronto area in Canada because they were able to get asylum there. Um, but my parents, uh, decided to stay in the U.S., um, even though they were, like, completely undocumented. Um, they just kind of, they were really into the American dream idea, and they kind of just wanted to stay here and and like make a go of it. And I think also they didn't want to live in really close proximity to their family because um, they were just, they wanted to just kind of get away from the nosiness and the, the prying and stuff. Mm -hmm. So they were like, we're going to do our own thing here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Wow. And um, were you brought up religious? I was brought up religious. Um, yeah, I, I grew up going to mosque and stuff like my parents weren't particularly, like, super devout practitioners. Like, a lot of Ismailis will go to mosque, like, every day. Uh, my parents would go, depending on where they were at in their lives, sometimes we would have to go, like, every Friday. Uh, but then some years, it was just, like, the major holidays. We would go for, like, Eid or, like, other major holidays. Um, but I, I, my parents have always kind of been, like, believers um, spiritually, and I was, I was raised that way. Um, but I'm not, I don't consider myself practicing anymore. Are there parts of yourself that relate to being Muslim now or? Yeah, I think, um, I've been thinking about that a lot over the last few years, especially being in, in New York where there are, um, the density of Muslims and South Asians in general is a, is a lot greater in New York city than it is in, or at least than it was in North Texas where I grew up. Um, so it's given me a lot more like context and a lot more like examples for how to kind of describe myself and um so I think kind of 
like I came across the the concept of like of like people describing themselves as culturally Jewish, for example. And I found that really interesting and um, have kind of been meditating on that idea and talking with other like ex-Muslims, basically, who were like raised in the faith but aren't religious or don't believe or don't practice. Um, so I think I think that I would say I'm culturally Muslim. It's important for me to identify that way because of the sort of racial political environment in the U.S. That like I do come from this background. Um, I don't want to disidentify with it in that way. I just like I'm an atheist. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, but like I'll still do things like cook a big dinner for Eid and like invite friends over and stuff because like those kinds of things are important to me, like kind of maintaining my my cultural ties to my background. Um, just, just without having to go to mosque. Um, and how have you negotiated when it comes to like cultural or religious, um, events, your gender and your identification with, as a queer person within Mm -hmm. those spaces? Yeah. I mean, it's awkward. Like, uh, I'm not, I'm not like quote unquote out to all of my family, um, although my, my parents know that I'm non-binary and trans identifying and, um, I think they basically also know that I'm queer at this point. Um, and like all of my cousins, like pe- people in my family of my generation, like they know about my life and stuff. Um, but like, I don't really want to have that conversation with like my old aunties or like my grandparents and stuff. Um, so often when I hang out with family, um, I used to have to go to mosque and it was like a big thing uh, if any of the kids like didn't want to go. But these days, like the older folks are really the only ones who like push for everyone to go. And so there's a lot more people who just kind of stay home. So I can I can do that. But when I do go to mosque, um, so Ismaili mosques are, are way less segregated by gender than um, most other Muslim mosques. So like we don't have to go in through separate doors or be in completely separate areas. There's like one big prayer hall and it's like one side of the prayer hall is women and one side is men with like a center aisle. There's no other, there's no separation other than that. Like there's no visual barriers or anything. Um, and it's like side by side because I think, I think the, I I think in our sect, um, gender equality is really important. So rather than like women being in the back or being away on a balcony or something, which is what you'll see at other mosques, um, we're side by side. Mm -hmm. Um, so I go, I, you know, I go on the women's side. Um, I usually dress like just like slacks and a button down and like maybe like a scarf around my shoulders or something for modesty Mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, I wouldn't feel comfortable going into the, on the men's side. I definitely feel a lot more sort of like affinity and kinship with women in general, even though I like don't identify as one. Um, I still strongly like identify with the experience of womanhood and having been raised that way and kind of moving through the world in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I don't know. There's also something weirdly nice about like all of the colors and the perfumes and the kind of jingling of like women's like clothings and jewelry and stuff that, you know, you, you don't really get when you hang out with men in their suits <laughs> yeah. and things. Um, yeah. So it's it's it actually like doesn't really make me feel like bad or dysphoric at the, or it really hasn't yet. 
um, really to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what's it like having another queer sibling in the family? It's honestly like such a, for lack of a better word, like a blessing. Um, I'm really, really grateful for, for my sibling. And, um, we do a lot of kind of affirming of reality for each other when we're in family spaces, which can be really kind of gaslighty or just, you know, something shitty will happen or someone will say something shitty and we can kind of even just make eye contact and just be there for each other or like Mm -hmm. bitch about it later and be like, I hate so-and-so. He's always saying this shit, like whatever. Um, that's super important. And I like, I, I definitely don't think I would have the same relationship to my, my family or be able to spend as much time with my family if I didn't have a queer sibling kind of like there with me. Mm. Yeah. Um, let's switch to some of the work that you do. I wanted to ask you about your union work. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so currently I work as a labor union researcher, um, which basically just means I am part of the staff of a, of a labor union and, um, and we work in the healthcare field. And, um, I basically just, I try to find information that is helpful for new organizing campaigns at, at new shops, like hospitals, health centers, nursing homes, stuff like that. So if they need to know, if the organizers need to know certain things, like, who's the board of directors at this hospital and what are their political affiliations or like, um, can you look up the, the financial statements of this nursing home and like find out how much money they actually have? Um, and how much is the CEO making versus how much are the workers being paid? Um, things like that, um, are just digging up like dirt that you can find online. Um, about certain institutions or people or whatever. Um, I basically just, I, I, I try to find the, in, the information that helps these campaigns be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And how has your experience been working for an organization like that? Um, yeah, well, I've, so the current place I'm working, I, this summer is my, um, third year at this union. And before that I worked, uh, for the, for the building trades, and um, before that, I worked for uh, like a um, building service union, which which generally means like sort of like janitorial staff, doormen, um, people like that. Um, so I've I've kind of done this work in a few different industries in the city, wow. um, and yeah, each each one was like a different environment, um, but overall, like. It's been hard to be a trans and gender non visually gender nonconforming person in in these spaces. Um, what are some of the difficulties you you face? Um, so uh, there is a lot of kind of open homophobia and transphobia. I mean, it it depends. You know, like maybe I could say like the building trades was worse, for example, than like maybe where I work now or maybe not, like, it's kind of hard to say. Mm. Um, yeah, there's a lot of open and, and sort of accepted, uh, like, yeah, homophobia and transphobia. Um, um, I don't even really like those words phobia because it's not like people are like afraid. They just, they just have a lot of hatred for, um, queer and trans people. 
Um, which, yeah, I mean, arguably you could say that roots back to fear, but it's like, you know, they're not like, ah, we're in trans people. They're like, these fucking freaks are like, why are they here? Why do they exist? And, you know, like, I don't know that I always get read, you know, I think, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm read a lot by people as, as a woman, but also like people will make comments about like the way that I dress or like how short my hair is or whatever that makes clear to me that like they do see me as as somehow different even if they don't like label me the way that i label myself there's tons of microaggressions they're kind of they're really like macroaggressions yeah not to diminish yeah no no totally yeah they're like um they're like not even as subtle as as one might say that microaggressions are they're just like out there um like our union president like my my first week at work at this current place, my union president, like, made a trans joke in his, like, speech at the, like, you know, big general staff meeting. And I was just like, okay, I I understand where I work now, you know. And do you have any solidarity among your coworkers, or how is your, are you stranded in that experience? Um, so my department, my research department is, um, is, is pretty cool. Like, people have better politics around gender and, around um like just not being hateful towards queer and trans people um my department's also really white um and that's hard too because the rest of the union is is largely people of color largely women of color and my my department because it's like in the sort of it like intellectual labor field it's mostly white men like cis white men um and they're they're all basically straight unless to my knowledge, unless someone's not been saying things. Um, so yeah, it's weird. Um, I I do ask my coworkers to use um, my pronouns, which are they, them. Um, and it was a struggle to get people in my department to, to do that. And I actually had to kind of like write up some complaints and stuff the, uh, after the first year and a half or so, because people just weren't giving a shit. Um, and I had to ask my boss to like actually enforce that. Wow. Did that work? It did work. Um, I mean, only in my department, uh, which is, which is pretty small. It's like maybe 15 ish people. Wow. Um, and the rest of the union, like, I don't know, like I have my pronouns on my email signature, you know, but like everyone just kind of ignores it. Um, and I don't really have the, I guess, courage to really push that with so many people. I'm afraid of making my work environment like shittier than it already is totally. by like just so much more work yeah and i kind of would rather just whatever just let it go Damn. Yeah. so yeah it's it's hard um and I, I care about my job i like i like my job like before i did this work i was doing food service i was doing like just random odd jobs or like um yeah what brought yeah. you to organizing or labor organizing mm-hmm. i um yeah, I kind of, like, after, so I, I graduated from college, I studied, like, basically sociology, um, and then just did the thing that a lot of, like, lefty college grads do when they, like, don't know how to interact with capitalism in a way that doesn't feel bad, <laughs> is they just, just do whatever jobs, like, pay the rent, and, um, I did that for a while and was just really kind of lost and also just broke all the time, and then, um, I met a friend, um, who was a union researcher and I, I didn't even know that this was a thing because I thought if you wanted to work for a union you have to be like a super charismatic organizer like 
out there in the field, like convincing people that like the union is the right choice, which like I agree with all that, but I just I just kind of can't do that sort of emotional labor. Um, and I'm, I'm really awkward and it's hard for me to talk to people. So I feel like I would not be a good organizer. Um, but, uh, knowing that I could, I could work for a union, like, and just sit at a computer and just do like the nerdy shit that I can do on like Excel and whatever, or like write memos. I was just like, this is kind of perfect for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I started just, I, I started doing some internships to get experience and then I was able to get hired. Um, full-time after a few years wow. yeah and I know you also help run or co-author um, a journal that has a lot of your politics and I wanted to know more about that yeah I'm um so I'm a I'm a co-founder and editorial collective member of um, lies it's a feminist materialist journal um, and uh, it started in 2011 um, and we're working on the third issue now, which hopefully will be out this year, later this year. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're, we're basically like a, like a Marxist feminist journal, but, um, but we differ from like Orthodox Marxism in that, like, we, we, we don't believe in a sort of like class centric politics where it's like everything comes down to class. Um, we actually like one of the foundational uh, I guess ideologies of our journal is that um, capitalism actually is, is more of like a triangle of, of um, power dynamics that go uh, between like class and race and gender. And all three of these things are interacting at the same time to create the capitalist system that we have now. Um, and so what we try to do is get writing by um, non-cis men um, and like, and prefer preferably if we can, like people of color, but not not always, and it doesn't have to be. Um, just to kind of provide a a platform for people to write about their experiences, their material experiences of like being the identity that they are, being in the body that they are, and trying to survive um, in the world. Um, and we also try to, you know, we have a kind of mix of people who. Um, write professionally or academically um but we also try to get a good chunk of the journal to be writing by people who um don't have this experience and maybe a lot of them are are maybe writing their first like full-length piece for publication Mm -hmm. and just kind of trying to sort of nurture the 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 words and the writing ability of, of people who have never really had that experience to like be able to write and learn how to do that yeah where can people find it um, so you can find our journal at um, liesjournal.net. It's lies as in like liar. Um, yeah, liesjournal.net. Um, you can download PDFs of volume one and two for free. Um, if you want to support the project, we are also distributed by AK Press. And um, volume one is currently sold out, but you can buy volume two for $10 and they will mail it to you. Um, but you're also welcome to just get it for free because we really just want people to read these ideas and, and hope that it generates even more thinking and writing. And we love when people email us and say, like, we have a reading group and we've been reading your journal and it's so good. Like, that's that's really just what we want is just to, like, put these ideas out into the circulation of ideas on the left in the world. And do you feel like providing a platform that's 
like the thrust of it it has this like Marxist leaning is a part of a discourse that you're in with your peer group or like other groups outside of this journal yeah definitely I mean I feel like um I feel like my all all of my social groups like both my both my like friend social groups and and now that I work at a labor union my my work social groups like people are always talking about labor about capitalism about race and gender and um you know and in my friend groups also like talking about gender and being being queer or being trans or being whatever um and just just how that deeply impacts everyone's exp- everyone's life um like you ca- you kind of can't live a neutral life like you live as the thing that you are as the many things that you are mm-hmm. and that's how you experience the world and that's how the world like kind of falls upon you mm-hmm. um yeah. yeah so it's kind of like you know i have this project but i i definitely like draw um I definitely draw from my daily experiences for like motivation to continue the project. Totally. Yeah. Um, getting back to just early childhood stuff, I was wondering um, when the concept of like transness first floated by, if there was like a person or like a book or some sort of like cultural artifact that activated this like capacity to understand the existence of it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, it's a bit hard to know like when the when the when the the moment really was. I think there's like a lot of there's a bunch of little memories like I remember myself um just kind of like gravitating away from uh you know, cuz in in elementary school and stuff, they often do, I don't know if they still do this, but growing up they often would be like, "Okay, boys over here, girls over here, we're going to like do a debate or something or like a project and I would kind of always bristle at that and it wasn't because I like didn't like girls or I like liked boys better or something um to hang out with it was just that it just it just didn't didn't compute for me totally and I never really knew what that meant but I I kind of always was just like I hate this um and uh yeah and this was in the you know in the 90s like I didn't I didn't have very many examples in popular culture of people who like called themselves trans um like like the vocabulary has changed a lot and the visibility has changed so much uh from when i was a child to now um but i do remember seeing like individuals who seemed gender non-conforming to me like um you know like like prince prince was like a pretty big fascination for me i was really interested in michael jackson also mm-hmm. like just these um these famous people who I could see visually like not conforming to the gender standards that I felt were heavily enforced all around me. It kind of gave me uh, a window into seeing that like what I'm seeing around me in my like Texas suburb is, is not the whole world. And that like you can do, you can do more, like it's okay to do more. And, And there are people who like, are really admired and celebrated who like do more things with their gender yeah. than what it's what the options seem to be to me and did you feel like moving to new york activated or evolved your understanding of your gender definitely like um by the end of high school i had decided that i was bisexual and that was like the best way that i could kind of um understand and describe like my 
my desires and who I had, I had desire for and how I felt about, um, myself and how I liked to present my gender. Um, and then, uh, yeah. And I, I, I didn't really, I only even came out to like a couple of friends, you know, um, just because it was such a, like, I knew a lot of quote boys who were out as gay at the time. We didn't even have like very many words. Cause like these people I'm talking about now are like, some of them are, are, tra- are trans identifying now, you know, but at the time this is like all we had. Um, but there were no like women or, or female assigned people that I knew, um, who were openly queer in any way. And there was a lot of like, I hung out with, um, like, like a lot of like out gay, uh, boys that I was friends with. And there was a lot of like, ew, lesbians are gross. Like vaginas are gross, whatever. So I kind of just felt like I had to just keep quiet about my desires. Um, and I felt like I had to, this, I I feel like this is, this is definitely a common refrain. Um, and it definitely like should be problematized. But at the time I felt like I had to move to a big city, a big gay city like New York, Mm -hmm. um, to even just have space to explore myself. Um, and I came to New York, um, I enrolled at NYU as a freshman and, um, immediately had access to like the LGBT student center and like these, you know, little dinners. And like, I learned new terms like, like non-binary, I think non-binary maybe came later, but like gender neutral or like gender queer or gender fucking or gender non-conforming, like all of these ideas. And I started studying also gender and sexuality. Um, I took classes where I could like read Foucault and like, like learn, like, you know, the gender and sex is all like constructed. And like, it just opened so much for me in my head that I was just like, Oh my God, I can literally just decide what I am like, and just be that because I feel like it. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's enough. And like, that was really cool. So that's when I, I felt like, uh, like in college I had the room to kind of explore not just my, my attraction to women, but like my, my gender that like, the kind of bristling that I've always felt about being labeled a woman, like actually had some substance and there were words to describe it. And there were other people who felt that way. And that like, it wasn't weird. It was, it was totally like a thing that a lot of people feel. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. And I think I started using they, them pronouns like towards the end of college. Yeah. And has your understanding of your gender evolved since then? Is there more language to attribute to how you feel? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, like, I think non-binary as an identity, like, came about actually later in my life than college. I think I used to probably say that I was genderqueer or something, or just, I don't remember. Um, but, um, yeah, like, like, as queer discourse kind of evolved, um, I, you know, I, I learned about, like, the concept of, of gender as a, as a spectrum, and, um, that felt a lot better than there being like a bunch of boxes or like a bunch of bubbles or whatever. It felt better to just kind of be like, I'm somewhere on the spectrum. I don't have to really like pick a really specific identity. And so I gra- I gravitated toward non-binary because it was a sort of refusal of um, putting myself in a, in a really specific identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I, that's still why I, I like it. Um, you know, and I, I know not everyone like, 
like feels this way about what non-binary means, but what it means for me is, is like, like actually just like a, a lot more just kind of wiggle room and breathing room, um, where it's like, I don't have to be like, what is your gender? Oh, my gender is this thing. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And honestly, like the, the, yeah, the visibility is, um, really complicated, but the greater visibility of not only trans people, not only like binary identified trans people, but also like non-binary trans people who are like now on TV and like my parents can read articles online about like what non-binary means, you know, that I can like send them and they're kind of like, I kind of get this. Yeah. Um, Other positive models that you have sent them or like have seen and they like that that's how it's being visibilized. Um, I don't even remember exactly what I've sent them, but there's like, um, I don't know. Teen Vogue is really amazing. Uh, I, I, I like grew up reading like Teen Cosmo and Teen Vogue and stuff. And those magazines did not used to be like, like radical in any way about gender. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like Teen Vogue has, has been completely taken over and I I love it because it's, it, I, I love knowing that like young people today have um, access to knowledge, like not just on the internet, but in like print magazines and stuff that is like teaching them these things that I had to, I had to go to a fucking private school in New York, um, and take gender and sexuality courses to, to start learning about. And now it's, it's, it's been like, um, publicized in this way where it's like not just locked up in this, in this academic setting, but like People every day are just kind of thinking about gender in a, in a different way, whether they maybe hate not it or about not. Marxism. <laughs> yeah, maybe not not about Marxism, but even I mean, Teen Vogue's even writing stuff about capitalism. It's like yeah. it's amazing. Um, so yeah, I definitely sent my parents a Teen Vogue article as one of the things because um, also they use really accessible language, um, which I really appreciate. Like my 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 parents learned English as their like third or fourth language. They're fluent in it, but also like what are their other languages? You know, oh. Um, Swahili, uh, which is the national language of Tanzania, um, uh, Swahili, English, um, Hindi, Urdu, Gujarati, which is my heritage language, Kachi, which is another heritage language um, from India. Wow. Uh, my mom speaks some French because she lived in Belgium for a little while before she moved to the U.S. Um, yeah, they speak a lot of languages. Um, it's pretty amazing. But yeah, like even though they're fluent in English, they're still like there's still a gap. There's a language gap sometimes as a generational gap, um, between us. And so being able to send them something that's like written in plain fucking English, um, where they can just kind of like take it in and, and go back to it and reread it and think about it is really, really great and important. Yeah. And do you feel like pressure being the first gen here with their vision of the American dream and the ways in which you're where you are right now? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think my parents have changed a lot too, which is, which I'm, I'm 30 now. So like, you know, I've, I've, I've come to see them and understand them really differently, like as like human beings, as opposed to as just like my parents that I put on this pedestal. Um, you know, and now I'm, I'm, I'm past the age at, at which they like had me and stuff. So I can kind of just be like, oh my God, like you had a kid, you know, <laughs> like that's crazy. Like, how, like, how did you pay the rent and have a kid? I guess that's why they moved from New York. That was a big reason, um, was that they couldn't do that. Um, um, yeah, sorry, I forgot the... Oh, it's okay, it's just, like, if you feel some sort of, like, um, pressured in... Oh, right, yes, yes. 
Yeah, I growing up I definitely felt that pressure a lot. I think my parents didn't really know what to do very much aside from just make sure that like I got all A's so that I could like get an education and somehow survive in this shitty country. Like that was their pressure. It was they were just like, you know, like be okay. Like be okay, don't starve, like mm. we're not gonna be here forever, like you need to be okay on your own. And it, there was this kind of constant like anxiety around that, that I grew up with, but, um, they've mellowed out a lot. They have grown to see that, you know, you don't just have to be like in it or like an accountant or like a doctor or whatever to, um, to have a, a worthwhile like career in life. I mean, they're still pretty career centric. The fact that I have like a full-time salaried job makes them very happy. Um, just because I have health insurance and, and mm. security and stuff, you know, and like, uh, you know, whereas before I didn't have those things and it made them very worried. Um, but it was more, I, I understand now that it was more because they've, they have, my parents have always worried about survival. Um, and, uh, it, I think for them it was less about like respectability and, and just more about like the, the anxiety around survival. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of healthcare, like, what are your experiences with healthcare? And if you wanted to talk a little about, like, medically using that in transitioning. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. um, I, yeah, so when I first moved to New York for a long time, I just, I didn't really go to the doctor much, or I would go to, like, my school health services, and that was always, like, very shitty. Um, Yeah. and then I found out about Cal- the Callan Lord Health Center in New York, which is a LGBTQ-centered, um, like, health center. Um, and uh, that really changed my life because I, like, I got, I got a doctor who's, like, a queer woman, and I got to talk to her about my gender, and I got to see her regularly, and she would always sort of check in on, like, it was almost like our, our, my, my, my regular doctor's appointment checkups were also kind of like social work checkups. Cause before she would even like check my heart and whatever, she would just, we would sit down and she'd be like, so how are you doing? Like, how's this? How are you feeling about this? Like, and it just felt like, um, like I'd never had healthcare that way, like ever. Um, you know, even when I was like my dad had, fortunately my dad had health insurance, um, when I was growing up uh, for most of my life. And so like, I did see doctors, but I never had a doctor that I could actually talk to about the real stuff. Cause it would be like, if I asked for birth control, she's going to go out and talk to my mom in the waiting room about it. Um, or if I ask about anything really, um, whereas this person was like my doctor, she was here for me mm-hmm. and she was here to like check in on me. Even if there were things I didn't bring up, she would bring them up. Um, so that was, that was really amazing. Like I am really grateful for, Cal and Lord and, and other organizations like them who, um, who provide a really needed service for queer and trans people. Um, yeah. And I've also found that whenever I have to step outside of that sort of queer healthcare bubble, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty hard. Like I, I was telling you earlier that I had to go, um, see a cardiologist just to like get my heart checked because of a couple of things that happened. And, um, yeah, I, um, it was a really unpleasant, experience like people uh you know yeah you just get automatically gendered um and like your you know your male or female on your form like automatically correlates to what pronoun they call you and um I got a lot of inappropriate questions like about 
um, my chest and, and like, why did I get top surgery and stuff? And it's like, none of this is at all relevant. And they didn't ask me questions that would actually be relevant. Like, you know, if you're, if they're checking my heart, like they should ask me, like, am I on testosterone? Um, things like that. But they just asked me like, so what, so what are you trying to be? And I was just like, I'm trying to be myself, yeah, <laughs> um, you know, and it was just, it was weird to even just be like, I have to tell these people things that they're not thinking about. Like, I'm not on testosterone that affects things about like my blood pressure levels and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like, you're the doctors, like I have zero medical school experience, but I know more about this than you do. And they just like could not handle having a trans person like in their exam room it was like it was really shitty um yeah and then and then kind of um yeah getting top surgery I got top surgery two months ago um and I I thought it it would be way more difficult than than it actually was because things have really come a long way since like I was in college and I first sort of started thinking about getting top surgery seriously like I've never ever felt good about having breasts but I didn't know that I could do anything about that. Um, I was never comfortable binding. It was always really, really, I would have panic attacks. It was like too tight. It was too uncomfortable. So I just kind of would wear like sports bras and dissociate and hope for the best. Um, and, uh, yeah, but then in college I was like around trans people and they were getting surgeries and I was like, oh wow, this is like an option. But when I was in college, like none of that was covered by insurance. So you just had to like fundraise like ten, fifteen thousand dollars, sometimes twenty thousand dollars, <laughs> just to get your tits cut off. And like, yeah, um, that was that was outrageous. Um, and so now I'm I'm really lucky also that like I live in New York City, I live in New York State, and it, it's it's the law that like health insurance has to cover transition related healthcare. Um, so actually, it, it wasn't that hard. I have um, I have a therapist now. I have uh, I have a I have a doctor. They're both themselves queer and they're trans competent people. And um, like NYU Hospital has like a a trans surgery department and tra- trans competent doctors whose whose specialty is transitional surgery so they're not just like plastic surgeons trying to like make money off trans people they like literally this is this is all they do yeah like they do top and bottom surgery like day in day out um so yeah that was that was actually like not that much of an obstacle um as as what I was expecting I and because I have really good health insurance through my job um I ended up I paid zero dollars for my surgery like literally zero dollars. Gorgeous, yeah. Yeah, uh, like the only things I paid for were like, you know, cocoa butter, <laughs> hey, <laughs> and like extra so extra pillows, like to prop me up in bed, and like you know, yeah. silicone scar tape and stuff, face masks to pamper myself. Like it was literally like I I didn't have to pay anything, and that was really incredible. And I know that's like not the experience of of people in other parts of the country, also. Totally. So, yeah. Um, I guess it's like a larger question, like. I, what are some of like hopes or fears now in this like political climate where we are entrenched in a demon yeah leading the country yeah yeah I mean I'm definitely scared um I think I, I would definitely be scared either way because like I am a person of color I was raised Muslim um but now that I'm also like 
even even more visibly identifiable as like a gender non-conforming person or a trans person. Like I get um, I get sirred a lot now um, post surgery, or I get like like sir, and then they're like, wait, ma'am, and I'm just like, Ugh. <laughs> just don't address me that way. It's fine. I'm just ordering a coffee. Um, you know. Um, and, and that, that moment of recognition and then confusion and, and whatever from cis people is, is always a moment of scariness for me because I don't know how people will react. Um, and sometimes people do react violently or cruelly. Um, uh, I'm also like, I find that my relationship to my, my spatial relationship to other people, especially men like on the street has changed. Like if I'm wearing a baseball cap, like people think I'm like a small guy. And I was, I was just talking to someone recently and just being like, I'm getting shouldered like all the time, you know, or like I'm trying to get off the train. And usually like, if someone thinks I'm a woman, if like a man thinks that I'm a woman, they'll like kind of move a little bit out of the way. Whereas now they just fully fucking walk into me. And it's like, I am still, you know, I'm still a small person, like compared to like your average, like cis male and so that's just it's just it's a lot it's a lot of force and mass against me but i also find myself just being like fuck it i will shoulder you back i will push back like i'll curse at you if you curse at me like you know um and so it's just kind of like adjusting to this and i think this is part of where like trans visibility gets complicated because yeah the more people who know about it like that's nice, but also if they know about it and they hate you, then they can more quickly identify you as, like, one of those people that they hate. Um, yeah, I mean, a few weeks after surgery, I was, like, actually attacked in a, in a bar um, by some drunk man who got upset at seeing me and thinking I was a man and then realizing I wasn't. Um, and I was still, like, really sore from surgery and couldn't really move my arms much, so it was really, I was really physically vulnerable I couldn't really defend myself. I had to push him away, and it, and it hurt me physically to do that because um, I wasn't supposed to be using those muscles because they were still healing. And, um, yeah, it was very frightening. Um, and this was, like, at a bar in my neighborhood, like, a block from my house. So, you know, I, th- I think the, the climate is both better and worse in this way. Um, and also, like, yeah, all of these things... Um, that I'm grateful for, like being able to get surgery and not pay for it or, you know, being able to get a, get a therapist who's like a queer person of color or things like that. They feel really precarious. Like maybe this, this is like a little bubble that's going to burst because our country's going like full fascist or something. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, is there anything else on your mind you want to talk about? (laughs) Um, and that we left out. Um, I guess I don't know. Some something that really keeps me going, or something else that I'm I'm really grateful for, is just like the community of queer and trans people that are my friends and lovers and everything, family, everything. Um, like I've I've lived in the city for many years, and um, you know, people come and go in and out of your life, but I I always kind of do feel like there is a, a community of some sort, you know, and again, that word is complicated and what does it really mean and how do we actually show up for each other? Like those are all very real 
critiques, but at the same time, like, I know that there's, there's, there's certain bars I can go to that are queer spaces. There's certain parties I can go to that are queer spaces. There's certain friends' apartments and, and certain neighborhoods where I can go and, like, look around and just see a bunch of queer-ass people just walking around, you know? And it's, it's so beautiful and it's, like, so affirming. Um, and it's why I, I honestly, like, I, I, there's very few other places in this country that I feel like I could live because I don't, I don't want to lose this. Um, like New York is a really queer city. Um, like whether people like it or not, like it really is. And, um, and I feel like, you know, like we are kind of staking our, our ground and just being like, we are fucking here. We live here. We're going to walk on the street and be gay and swishy and like whatever we're gonna we're gonna take over these bars and like have our have our parties and confuse the straight people who are there and don't know what's going on um like I will walk down the street with like the woman I'm dating and like hold her hand and like make out just like I would with someone else you know and um and yeah people say stuff but I also feel like I can this is a place where I can just be like I am living like my life like, I don't have to hide things the way that I did growing up. Um, so that's super important to me, and that, that also gives me hope. Um, like, I feel like this is getting kind of corny, but, like, it does give me hope in this, like, really shitty time because it's, like, they can't make us disappear. Like, whatever they do, like, they can't make us disappear, and, like, queer and trans people are fighting every day. And, you know, no matter what happens, just like I said, I, I don't know what will happen, but one thing that I do know is is that, like... We won't stop fighting, and we've never stopped fighting. So, I, I guess I'm like ready for the fight, like whatever it is. All right, thank you. <laughs>